anyone could essentially help you to reframe a conversation because it's ultimately about decisions. Am I going to do something or am I going to do nothing, which is also an active decision. Have you ever wondered about how we make decisions about our money or why we feel the way we do about those decisions? Welcome to Nudging Financial Behavior, the podcast that aims to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about money. Presented by Dr. Giselle Willows, an expert in behavioral finance. This podcast is all about looking at human behavior and biases, especially when it comes to your finances. You can catch the series on YouTube, the Nudging Financial Behavior blog, or on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to like and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. Special thanks to our sponsor, IG Market South Africa, a world-leading online trading provider that gives you access to opportunities across thousands of financial markets through their intuitive platforms and apps. Let's get started. Welcome to episode eight of Nudging Financial Behavior. I'm Dr. Giselle Willows. In this series, it's my goal to help you recognize the biases that can subtly and sometimes not so subtly pull or push your thinking into making decisions about your finances that aren't entirely rational. When you're able to recognize these pushes and pulls, you'll be able to make smarter choices about your money and hopefully end up saving and earning more. In this episode, we're continuing our discussion on biases and how they impact the way we make decisions. Please press the thumbs up button to like this episode. And if you're not subscribed to our channel yet, well, why not? Click subscribe now. Today, I'm looking at the framing effect. Later on, I'll chat with financial advisor Louis van der Merwe about how he's seen the framing effect play out with these clients. Framing is a bias that's not about the specific information that you're presented with, but rather how that information is presented to you. In other words, it's not what you say, but how you say it. Essentially, the framing of information changes your perception of the actual information. Imagine you are in a shop and you want to purchase healthy yogurt. And let's say that your definition of healthy is the elimination of fat. You see two tubs of yogurt. One says it's 99% fat-free, the other says it's 1% fat. If you think about it, both yogurts make the exact same claim about their fat content. However, people are more likely to choose the 99% fat-free yogurt, the only difference being that the fat content was framed differently. Now imagine that you're walking through the shopping mall and you see a sign for a sale in a clothing shop. On the rack of sale items, you have clothes that are 10% off all the way through to one item that is 80% off. The sign could say between 10% and 80% off, or it could say up to 80% off. Which one is more likely to make you stop and take a look? I know I like the sounds of the second one a whole lot more. Let's not forget that the second sign is probably styled so that the words 80% off are big and bold, while the up to will be much smaller and not as noticeable. It can be argued that framing isn't really a psychological bias. It's simply how we make sense of life. But with that argument, we can probably explain away most biases. What we can agree on is that without framing, we don't have any context to a situation or decision. But the problem is that the framing influences our perception of things. We're definitely in a bit of a catch-22 situation here. So let's take a look at some other examples of framing. Consider a restaurant wine list. Typically, most wine lists have a few expensive options, a few cheap options, and then some mid-range options. The reality 
is that the mid-range options are often surprisingly expensive. But when viewed as the reasonable compromise between the comparatively expensive and cheap options, the price of the mid-range wine appears reasonable. Let's say I have two wine lists. On the first list, we have one bottle of wine on the list at 300 Rand, and two on the list at 100 Rand each. The 300 Rand bottle of wine seems expensive. I mean, it's three times more expensive than the other two bottles. This is clearly an expensive wine reserved for special occasions, and your impulse will be to go for one of the 100 Rand bottles of wine. Now let's look at a second list. There's a wine bottle at a whopping 800 Rand, the same 300 Rand bottle we saw on the first list, and one of the 100 Rand bottles from the first list. The 800 Rand bottle of wine is very expensive and therefore for a special occasion only. But now, this list makes the 100 Rand bottle of wine look cheap. And then we think it's obviously not as good as the other two. Suddenly, that 300 Rand bottle looks like the right choice. So with the first list, we stayed away from the 300 Rand bottle because it seemed too expensive. But with the second list, we choose the 300 Rand bottle. This is called the compromise effect, a very closely related term to the framing effect. It's a technique that is favored by marketers, and I'm sure you can see why. A key learning point here is that price is not necessarily indicative of value. But negative framing is used to influence our value perception. Another popular type of framing is glossing. Think about a falling share price that is termed a correction, or transforming problems into opportunities, or challenges and weaknesses into areas for development. It's all framing. Here's another good example. An overpaid acquisition price branded as Goodwill. Bear with me here. I'm an accounting lecturer at UCT. When company A buys company B, they do due diligence and determine what the fair value of all company B's assets is. That's the value of all their assets, it's the value of all their liabilities. Let's say that's 100 Rand. But company B will only accept a price of 120 Rand. Stay with me. We need to do some elementary accounting to explain this one. And accounting is all about balancing those debits and credits. So, when company A buys company B, they recognize a credit of 120 Rand going off their bank. But every credit needs a debit. On the debit side, they recognize all the assets and liabilities they've taken over from company B. But we know that comes to only 100 Rand. Oh dear, our journal doesn't balance. The difference, which is a debit of 20 Rand, is what company A then calls goodwill. It's supposed to represent the extra you paid for intangible benefits, things like access to client lists, synergies. But other times, it's actually just overpaying. But we call it goodwill because it frames it better. The idea of glossing is that you frame something that is actually negative into a positive light. And we all do it. If you make a mistake, you want to feel better about yourself, so you put a positive spin on the situation. At your last job interview, you probably spun some of your weaker qualities with a positive light to make you look like a better hire. Or maybe you were fired from your last job, so you glossed that over with the story of how the company forced you out. It's totally natural. The problem, though, is that there's a huge potential for abuse with glossing. Think of the great job the media does in creating scary stories where there aren't any. Shark attacks have increased by 200% this year, when the reality is that they increased from 2 to 6. And perhaps the definition of attack has actually also become more generous. And here's another perilous one. Genocide framed as ethnic cleansing and a war as a special military operation. 
Okay, those are very big concepts of framing. Let's bring it back down to everyday life and making decisions about your finances. A major concept to understand about framing is that the size of the frame is also important. Yes, sometimes size does matter. The major tendencies, well, the major tendencies of people tend to frame things very narrowly. They take a narrow view of decision makings. They look at the problem at hand and they deal with it as if it were the only problem. Very frequently, it's a better idea to look at problems as they will recur throughout your life. And then you look at the policy that you ought to adopt for a class of problems. Difficult to do would be a better thing. Uh, people frame things narrowly in the sense, for example, that they will save and, and borrow at the same time instead of uh, somehow treating their whole portfolio of, of assets as, as one thing. If people were able to take a broader view, they would in general make better decisions. So that is certainly one, one of the weaknesses of human decision making. We call it narrow framing. That was Daniel Kahneman, the renowned psychologist and economist who I brought up in episode five with his theory of system one and system two thinking. In this comment about narrow framing, he makes an excellent point. We tend to deal with each problem or question as if it existed in a bubble on its own. Instead, we need to look at the larger context of the situation. In the investment world, narrow framing is a term used to describe someone who views each individual share or investment in isolation. The frame of reference is simply the individual company or investment. In the same context, a wider frame would refer to someone viewing their entire share portfolio or overall wealth instead of just one element. Might not sound like there is too much of a difference between these two approaches, but there really is. The trouble with framing is that while it doesn't look like it will make a difference, it really does. Investors who make decisions based on a narrow frame of reference have poorly diversified portfolios compared to those with wider frames. Consider the financial impact of this on a business. This doesn't always equate to lower returns, but it indeed equates to greater volatility and higher risk. This is very relevant for day traders because they work on one single trade to the next. And often it's okay if you lose eight trades out of 10 because the two you win have higher profit margins. So you win overall. The key for a good trader is to always have a wide frame when looking at the performance of all your trades. Another thing to consider about framing is this. When it comes to money decisions, our brains need us to form frames. Dangerous frame though is, I deserve this. When you start framing your spending decisions in such a way, you can convince yourself that you should spend money on just about anything. Remember what I said about lifestyle creep in episode three? With this frame, your lifestyle creep can grow exponentially. Another similar frame is the enabling frame. This is when you have a broad definition of what constitutes a necessity. And for example, you help your children with things that they could probably handle on their own. It can quite often be seen in the way parents choose to pay for things versus how their children have decided to spend their money because they have different priorities. As an example, your child gets an allowance from you for doing various chores around the house. And it's a good allowance, right? Enough for them for at least to buy the essential clothing items that they need each season. But winter comes and they've spent all their money on games. Now, their winter clothes are looking worn and their jackets are too small. What do you do as a parent? You go out and you get them some more winter clothes, of course, because you can't have your child getting cold. 
you change the story to fit your actions. Now, parents, this is normal, okay? And we can argue whether the child intentionally spent all their money on games, knowing that mom and dad would buy them clothes, or whether it was just a lack of foresight. The age of the child is probably also relevant here. But take this example and apply it to things where you now maybe recognize that you might be enabling others. You're just creating a different frame to suit the story you're already telling yourself. So how do we guard against the framing effect? The thing is, framing isn't always done intentionally. And even when it is done intentionally, it's not necessarily malicious. It might just be there to provide context. Whenever you're doing your research into an investment opportunity or where to put your money, it's important to consider what frame you're looking through. Reword the argument, particularly the argument of those who are trying to persuade you to choose something. As we can see in the wireless example we discussed earlier, if you change the frame, you make a different decision. Let's quickly have a chat with Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner at WealthUp. Hi, Louis. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Giselle. Thanks for having me. How does it feel to be on the other side of the table with me asking you the questions this time? I like it. It's a lot less pressure. I just need to respond. For those of you who don't know, Louis hosts a podcast, Ensemble Advice of Africa, which is dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice. If you're in the financial planning profession, it's well worth a listen. But now it's my turn to ask the questions, Louis. We're talking about framing in this episode and how sometimes we can have very narrow frames over how we view our investments. What are some examples of how you've seen this with clients over the years? Giselle, that's such a great question. And it's something that literally came up this week where a client had set in his mind that they have to sell their property in able for them to reach their financial goals. So potentially incurring a lot of taxes, unnecessary heartache, giving up their family home, purely because they couldn't see that there's distributions coming from a trust in the near term. And so we get so fixated on what's the obvious answer in our minds that we completely lose track of the blind blind spots. And for someone else to look from the outside in saying, no, this is not the only option. Let us help you zoom out. It's so helpful to have those type of conversations. It's so helpful to have a financial planner to help you zoom out. I think it's like naturally we get stuck in our thought patterns and just having someone to challenge some of those preset ideas. It's just, yeah, it's very helpful conversations if we're ready for them. And how do you as a financial planner, I mean, how are you able to pick this up or spot this bias to help your clients before they make a potentially bad decision? Giselle, I think it goes back to what are the core skills of a financial planner. And one that is so difficult to cultivate is actually listening for what someone is not saying. And it's slowing down the conversation and actually picking up that, hold on, this client keeps on coming back to this specific area and mapping out in your mind what other alternatives there could be, and then hopefully framing the questions more open-ended to say, oh, you know, we've considered that, but what else might we consider? You know, are there other options for us here? Is this the only option? Really big, open-ended things where you might not feel like the expert, but you challenge your client to say, okay, let me change my thought pattern in this specific thing that I'm so passionate and I've already made up my mind to maybe consider alternatives. 
Do you ever get stuck with a client who's just so narrow in their thinking and incredibly difficult to move and widen that frame? I mean, do you ever have those situations? And if you do, what is the best way to approach that with a client? I think as humans, we get stuck in our emotions. And so if we look at what drives our decision making, unfortunately, it's not the technical things. It's not the clear answers. It's typically the emotions underlying that decision. And getting someone to slow down, to notice what's coming up, what might be driving these decisions, and getting them to see that insight, I find that that makes the conversation that much easier because we're six times more likely to follow our own thought patterns than what someone else tells us. And if we get to a point where we can say, you know what, I'm actually holding on to this thing out of fear or I'm buying this out of greed, or there's just this really irrational thing that has happened. If we get to slow down that conversation and becomes apparent and we allow the client to see that, it just changes the conversation and we can automatically look at other options. I want to add, we shouldn't be too tied to any specific outcome. As long as that outcome is in the client's best favor, if you're starting with kind of an instruction or an end point and you're beginning there, it's really difficult to change your mind. And as you're saying this to me, all I'm thinking about is how important it is that you have a relationship with your financial planner. Because the only way you can have these conversations, these constructive conversations, is if you have a really good relationship with them, where you trust them. If you're willing to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm thinking about this decision. Can you give me some insight? Like, Can you help me here? So it's getting to a point where you acknowledge that this is maybe there's something at stake here. I want to bring in someone else's opinion and it might be a financial advisor. It might be your spouse. It might be your best friend. As long as that person has some sense of trying to challenge what it is that you're trying to achieve, some insight from what works. The benefit of talking to a financial planner is that we see the scenarios over and over again. Right? So you get a little bit more trained at knowing what to spot, but anyone could essentially help you to reframe a conversation because it's ultimately about decisions. Am I going to do something or am I going to do nothing, which is also an active decision? Definitely. Thank you so much, Louis. Great to have you as my guest at last. I hope you can now see that having the awareness that everything that is communicated to you contains an element of framing. Every fact, even if you heard it from a reliable source, is subject to this bias. Even this podcast is guilty of framing. As you can see, all of these biases that we've been talking about are such a big part of everyday life that it becomes difficult to spot them and to know if they are impacting your decision-making in a negative way. I'm going to keep saying it though, being aware of these biases will help you to spot them and interrogate them. That's the only way to combat them. And that's it for today's episode of Nudging Financial Behavior. Please give us a thumbs up if you haven't already. Up next, we're talking about anchors. We'll also have some fun with some social experiments, so be sure to tune in. That was Nudging Financial Behavior, hosted by behavioral finance expert, Dr. Giselle Willows. Make sure you like and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can catch the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast on YouTube, our blog, or your favorite podcast streaming platform. 
Thank you again to our sponsors, IG Market South Africa, for helping to bring the show to life. And now for the disclaimer. This podcast should not be seen as advice. All the information and opinions are of a general nature. They are not intended to address the needs or circumstances of any individual. We are not financial advisors, neither are any of our staff or service providers, nor is our sponsor. All expressions of opinion by the host or guest are subject to change without notice in reaction to shifting market conditions. Any information you get from us should be seen as only that. Information only.